The last paragraph of this book surely tells us how to live more beautifully and more wisely than any other paragraph I've read. It really did catch me off guard when I read it. I was, I was like, wait, did I really just read what I think I read? I reread it several times, that last paragraph, and it, like, it, it really brought me to tears. Hello. In today's recording, Claire and I will chat about another of our favorite books, Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just-for-fun writing prompt that will hopefully help you see your own hometown as something strange and new. To begin, I'd like to read a couple quotes by Italo Calvino about writing or reading or literature. Here's the first. Quote, what romantic terminology called genius or talent or inspiration is nothing other than finding the right road empirically, following one's nose, taking shortcuts. I like this quote a lot because, yeah, great works can sometimes seem so great that they seem superhuman in some way. But I think he's right to point out that they are simply the sum of their parts. They can seem more than the sum of their parts, but these parts, the parts of genius, are intuition, trial and error, taking shortcuts, solving micro-level problems here and there throughout the text. And if you do this well enough on the level of the line or the paragraph or the sentence of the page over and over and over again, what all of these empirical solutions add up to is something that can seem, I think, almost divine. Here's the second quote. The struggle of literature is in fact a struggle to escape from the confines of language. It stretches out from the utmost limits of what can be said. What stirs literature is the call and attraction of what is not in the dictionary. And for more about the limits of what can be said and what is not in the dictionary, let's go into that chat between me and Claire. So, hello, Claire Akebrand, author of the, F <laughs> the Field is White, which is a novel, and What Was Left of the Stars, which is a book of poems. Mm-hmm. What's new with you? Um, I'm trying to prepare myself for Christmas break. Yeah. Nothing else new? Nothing is new. What have we been reading this week? Is this for real now? Yeah. <laughs> Everything is always for real. We're on air. <laughs> We're on air yeah. yeah. We are obvious. We obviously just read Invisible Cities, but we've just started reading Passage to India, which is beautiful so far. So you've never read Invisible Cities, have you? No, I had never read it. So you didn't know anything about this book going into it, did you? I knew nothing, which I love starting a reading experience that way. I really do. And uh, what did you think? I knew that you loved it, and I knew that at some point it must become very beautiful or meaningful. But I do have to admit, in the beginning, first few pages, I was definitely into all the images, and I and I liked the relationship between Marco and Kublai. Is that how you pronounce it? I guess. But it, it took. It wasn't like a immediate. I didn't fall in love with it right away. But I was definitely intrigued. So um, 
I kept reading and then I'd come across these poetic moments that were very unusual to me and different than a lot of other things I had read. Um, I did get to some of the, the jewels in the book and then I started to really like it. Um, some of the uh, sections that are, there are, I mean, basically pro- prose poems, right? Well, that's a question. Is this a novel? Oh, yeah. I, I'm uninterested in that <laughs> that whole debate, you know? Yeah, tell us why. <laughs> the, the book is whatever the author says it is. If a poet or if a writer writes a group of poems and calls it a novel, then I'll read it as a novel. And I don't care if technically it's not. What does it matter? Yeah, no, I've never really cared that much either. I just ask it in order to highlight the, the strangeness of this book. Yes. So Marco Polo, the, the traveler from Venice, who has you know seen all of the known world, um, is tar- talking to the emperor, Kublai Khan, of uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge fame. Xanadu fame. And he's describing to Kublai Khan all of the various cities and places and strange lands and countries that he's visited and seen. So the book is organized as a series of prose poems, small little sections, some are a paragraph, some are a couple pages, that describe these cities, and all these cities have names. Interwoven into these little prose poems are these italicized sections in which Marco Polo and Kublai Khan chat about all kinds of things, travel, language, Time, space, history. And I do love how those dialogues are woven into the text in such a continuous way, you know. They get interrupted by descriptions of cities, and then you return, and it just seems like because of that format, the conversation is always ongoing. Yeah. And they're always in that garden, and there is a whole section about that, a whole dialogue about how they feel... As if maybe even while traveling distant countries, they're always in the garden. They just have to close their eyes. I wanted to ask you, they explicitly answer this question in the book, but is Marco Polo, has he been to any of these places? Are these real places? I mean, there's always the question of if seeing one city is like, or seeing many is is like seeing one, or seeing one is like seeing all. Because, you know, cities all have things in common, no matter how different they are. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, then in that way, maybe he has seen either none of them or all of them. (laughs) That's pretty much the conclusion I came to. So the book begins this way. Kublai Khan does not necessarily believe everything Marco Polo says when he describes the cities visited on his expeditions, but the emperor of the Tartars does continue listening to the young Venetian with greater attention and curiosity than he shows any other messenger or explorer of his. So... Yeah, right there from the very first paragraph, there's this hint that Marco Polo is either lying or unconvincing or elaborating, embellishing the truth, right? And then there are these other sections in the book, like this one, this comes on page 103. It's this little tiny dialogue in the form of a kind of play. Kublai saying this to Marco Polo. I do not know when you have had time to visit all the countries you described to me. It seems to me you have never moved from this garden. Polo, Marco Polo responds, everything I see and do assumes meaning in a mental space where the same calm reigns as here, the same penumbra, the same silence streaked by the rustling of leaves. At the moment when I concentrate and reflect, I find myself again always in this garden at this hour of the evening in your august presence, though I continue without a moment's pause moving up a river green with crocodiles or counting the barrels of salted fish being lowered into the hold. 
et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, they, they, they're not hiding the fact that these are more or less imaginary places. Mm-hmm. I mean, this book is clearly a some type of dreamlike fantasy, the whole thing. But um, it does become, maybe we can talk about parables. Mm-hmm. Um, it does become an odd sort of parable. You, you start rethinking places. And you start wondering, like, what is a, a true place? Mm-hmm. <laughs> am I in this place right now? Or am I in a past place? Am I in some place in the future? You are wherever your um, attention is. Right. I think it's a great... I mean, one of the reasons I love this book is because it's a kind of hymn of praise to the imagination. Oh, yeah. And it felt very much like Wallace Stevens. Right. Um, well, there's this other Wallace. There's this Wallace Stevens poem that comes to mind when I read this book. It's called "Tea at the Palace of Hoon." This is immediately exotic, highly romanticized title and mm-hmm. place. Who yeah. who is Hoon, and what is this palace or palace? Tea at the Palace of Hoon, mm-hmm. and uh, it's four small stanzas. Not less because in purple I descended the western day through what you called the loneliest air. Not less was I myself. What was the ointment sprinkled on my beard? What were the hymns that buzzed beside my ears? What was the sea whose tide swept through me there? Out of my mind the golden ointment reigned, and my ears made the blowing hymns they heard. I was myself the compass of that sea. I was the world in which I walked. And what I saw or heard or felt came not but from myself. And there I found myself more truly and more strange. Yeah, that's this, perfect. This could be an epigraph for Invisible Cities, right? Mm-hmm. So Marco Polo maybe has never left Venice. It's possible that Marco Polo has never left Venice, and yet he dreams these cities and he, fi- he, he invents world after world after world. Mm. There's this kind of multiverse of strange, exotic, surreal, impossible places, planets, countries that he visits, and he never leaves, so he is himself. None of this exists except for inside of his own mind. And yet, in these interior travels, he finds himself both more truly and more strange. So he sees familiar aspects of himself in these strange places, but he notices certain things about himself that he never noticed were strange before. You know what I mean? I think it's a great kind Mm -hmm. of parallel text. Yeah, that's perfect. It is not the voice that commands the story. It is the ear. Says who to whom? Um, Marco says to Kuplai. What's the implication there? Um, the implication is that we create meaning from what we hear. So we mm-hmm. create the story, which I think relates to parables too. I, I love parables because I think they can be so powerful because you have the freedom of uh, interpreting them right. to your needs. Well, can we read a couple little small example cities that you say are parables? Yes, there's a gorgeous one. Cities and the Dead. What makes Argia different from other cities is that it has earth instead of air. The streets are completely filled with dirt. Clay packs the rooms to the ceiling. On every stair, another stairway is set in negative. Over the roofs of the houses hang layers of rocky terrain like skies with clouds. We do not know if the inhabitants can move about the city, widening the worm tunnels and the crevices where roots twist. 
The dampness destroys people's bodies and they have scant strength. Everyone is better off remaining still, prone. Anyway, it is dark. From up here, nothing of Argea can be seen. Some say it's down below there, and we can only believe them. The place is deserted. At night, putting your ear to the ground, you can sometimes hear a door slam. It's gorgeous. So it, it's just this little tiny impressionistic sketch of this impossible place. And as you say, it does its symbolic seeming enough to have the cadence of a parable. It does, yeah. You know what I mean? But th- none of these are editorialized or commented on or explained, right? It's almost as if, you know, for those with ears to hear, let them hear. Mm-hmm. But I think this quote that you read, Marco Polo saying to Kublai, it's not the voice that gives meaning, but it's the ear or finds meaning or however that was phrased. That section, my my whole soul just kind of jumped on it because it was vague enough, but also concrete enough for me to for my mind to branch in so many different directions. Yeah, that's what happens. The mind branches. You read one of these and the mind branches like, oh, it could, it reminds me of this or it could mean that or, you know, not that these need decoding or that they're secret messages or that they have clear um, allegorical parallels to anything specific necessarily. Right. But there is something metaphysically resonant about the best ones. That's right. It, It activates your entire soul. Your entire imagination. It's a work of pure imagination that speaks to the reader's imagination. Here's one of my favorites. This is called Cities and Eyes, number three. After a seven days march through woodland, the traveler directed towards Bacchus cannot see the city, and yet he has arrived. The slender stilts that rise from the ground at a great distance from one another and are lost above the clouds support the city. You climb them with ladders. On the ground, the inhabitants rarely show themselves. Having already everything they need up there, they prefer not to come down. Nothing of the city touches the earth except those long flamingo legs on which it rests, and when the days are sunny, a pierced, angular shadow that falls on the foliage. There are three hypotheses about the inhabitants of Bacchus. That they hate the earth, that they respect it so much they avoid all contact, that they love it as it was before they existed, and with spyglasses and telescopes aimed downward, they never tire of examining it, leaf by leaf, stone by stone, ant by ant, contemplating with fascination their own absence. Yeah, why do you love that? Well, I think human beings are obsessed with images of their own negation. We love imagining our own extinction or our own absence. We love it. We love movies in which we go extinct or are almost driven to destruction or we love imagining the earth before we were or, you know, that explains the whole phenomena of disaster movie or, you know, dystopian movies or post-apocalyptic movies. We're just, we kind of fetishistically can't stop thinking about the earth, what the earth would be like without us. You just decoded my entire love for abandoned places. I never realized why. I'm so drawn to empty, deserted places, especially like deserted malls that are basically out of business. <laughs> yeah. Well, the last phrase of this is that we have a fascination with our own absence. So why is that? Why do we love our own absence or the idea of it? You know, that these people live in a city built on stilts and they don't really live in the city. They're staring down at the earth all the time because they love 
the idea or image of an earth that doesn't exist with them on it. That's so cool. You know, it's actually interesting because as I was reading um, Passage to India, there was a part where um, some of the characters were reading poetry and they loved reading poems about the fleeting nature of youth because it made them feel their own youth. Mm. And maybe that's what happens with contemplating your own absence. You feel your own presence more. It puts your presence, your existence, your being here into starker relief. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, that's that's a kind of taste of the types of cities and the par- parable-like nature of the things that Marco Polo describes. They're slightly cryptic, slight, highly resonant, mostly surreal. I mean, most of the cities he describes oh, yeah. are magical in some way or other. Yeah, but it's not quite like that right in the beginning, right? They get weirder. That could be true. As the book goes on. Yeah, that could be true. I mean, one thing that makes this book slightly hard to read is that there is no through plot. There's no, there is no plot. Hmm. It's a series of prose poems stitched together with these little mini conversations. Yeah. And so if you're looking for development or rising action, you know, or character change, that doesn't really happen. Hmm. But if you enjoy being in a place where this type of wanderlust and longing just keeps increasing, then this is a great book to spend time in. Well, but also I think it's quite honest at evoking the limits of human imagination. Wanderlust with an O. Wanderlust <laughs> for wanting to imagine. That's It's more wanderlust than wanderlust in this book, right? The desire for... Limitless travel. That's right, the desire for something beyond boundary. Yeah, for invisible cities, for all those. That's another thing I really love in this in this book. The way these cities are stacked on top of each other, interweave each other, are separate in some ways, but literally all one in other ways. Well, that's very interesting. Okay, so... Yeah, because at the very beginning, this is how the very first section ends. Only in Marco Polo's accounts was Kublai Khan able to discern through the walls and towers destined to crumble the tracery of a pattern so subtle it could escape the termites gnawing. I thought that was so beautiful. And there's a related section slightly later, if I can find it. Where's that bit where he's like, there are only stones. Without the ark, there'd be... Yeah. Oh, yes. So a bit later, there's this very small section... And it goes like this. This is a little, a little snippet of conversation between Marco Polo and Kublai Khan. Marco Polo describes a bridge stone by stone. But which is the stone that supports the bridge? Kublai Khan asks. The bridge is not supported by one stone or another, Marco answers, but by the line of the arch that they form. Kublai Khan remains silent, reflecting. Then he adds, why do you speak to me of the stones? It is only the arch that matters to me. Polo answers, Without stones, there is no arch. So I love this. So the, the poem celebrates the individual cities, but it organizes them into this quite complex pattern, right? Mm-hmm. So there's something in, you might only be dazzled by a few of these cities, but I think as a whole, they create something much bigger than the sum of their parts. There's a kind of implicit argument in the structure of this book the whole of the world, the whole of life, the whole of a person, the whole of a work of art, the whole of a mind isn't just a pile of stones, 
but that that pile of stones creates an arch that can that that is something else is something greater than just any single stone yeah or that's something greater even than the pile of stones i mean if you go onto wikipedia you'll see that the structure of this book is quite mathematically organized yeah. and i you know i, I don't i didn't i don't really care that much about deciphering why and how i think it's mostly a kind of structure that calvino imposes on himself to you know push himself forward through the compositional process but mm, I like that it's not the uh, objects you use it's the patterns you put them into it's the pattern of the objects that gives the objects power a book like this you might be tempted to move around and skip you know from city to city or read not chronologically or not linearly yeah and i think you could and still get a lot out of it but there is this arc that happens which makes the last paragraph so yeah so shockingly beautiful which we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, I won't say anything. <laughs> you wanted to talk about this atlas. So the book is called Invisible Cities, but there's this atlas yeah, in which all kinds of other cities are implied or mentioned or talked about. I know. Cities that haven't even been discovered are already on the atlas, which I thought was so cool. In, the, in a dialogue between Marco and the emperor, uh, the emperor says, I think you recognize cities better on the atlas than when you visit them in person. And Polo answers, traveling, you realize that differences are lost. Each city takes to resembling all cities. Places exchange their form. Order, distances, a shapeless dust cloud invades the continents. Your atlas preserves the differences intact. That assortment of qualities which are like the letters in a name. It's the act of naming. You can crudely sort them. Well, because they're named, right? So an assortment of qualities which are like the letters in a name. So I remember being a kid, opening atlases, reading the names of places. We take it for granted that a place, just a random area, can be one thing and have one name, right? Mm -hmm. But that is quite absurd. Well, but it's a magical. What happened when I did that as a kid was that my mind filled in the blank like you know i've never been to i don't know estonia mm -hmm. but i would look at places i would look at words like this on the atlas and the letters would seem to you know it's just a game of a free association of course mm -hmm. but the letters began to mm -hmm. evoke certain images certain sounds which would in turn evoke other images and sounds mm -hmm. so every named place immediately becomes alive and vivid inside of your imagination in a way that's more real than when you visit it. Yes, exactly. So that when you visit it, it's slightly unreal. It's slightly somehow inauthentic right, or slightly it's... disappointing or slightly phantasmal or ghostly because your whole life you've been carrying with you this version that was a creation of yours and became a part of you mm. in your mind, in your soul. Yeah. There's other places, too, in the book that reminded me of Wordsworth, the way uh, sometimes you can't make sense of an experience until after, in a moment of tranquility. Yeah. And possibly through language. That's right. I mean, Wordsworth, you know, in the we talk about the prelude too much, maybe, but Wordsworth climbs the Alps and doesn't really know that he's passed, you know, the highest peak hmm. and realizes after this that in his mind it was way better. Mm-hmm. As grand as it is in real life, his mind was capable of, of imagining something even better. But don't you think that this, this section right here celebrates both the imagination and facts? 
like the or i shouldn't say fact but maybe the act of trying to create something concrete so to create a type of fact what do you mean <laughs> it would seem in a book like this that the imagination is is a, is above everything but then for marco to say that there's such a value in in map making in at least in trying to to make it less abstract to make it less of just a figment right. of your imagination but to make it a real life object there is value in that too like the words or like the letters in a name it's a strange paradox where the the imagination is being celebrated for its freedom break the limits yes and its boundless expansiveness and its kind of omnipotence mhm but that omnipotence seems continuously aiming towards grounded tactile earth-like reality yeah and and i love that he says there that you can see the differences i think sometimes we really crave that we crave <laughs> seeing things separate from each other yeah. or to have clear boundaries clear lines you can get lost in your mind you can get lost in your imagination you can get lost in all of these different ways your brain branches out like in a work like this well I'll, i want to read a section and get you to respond to it because i think it's related to what you're saying the ability for the mind to constantly branch out and ramify and riff off what it sees is this good or bad is this a blessing or a curse there's this wonderful moment where where marco polo and kublai khan are playing chess do you remember this oh yeah and this is what marco polo says your chessboard sire is inlaid with two woods ebony and maple the square on which your enlightened gaze is fixed was cut from the ring of a trunk that grew in the year of drought you see how its fibers are arranged here a barely hinted knot can be made out a bud tried to burgeon on a premature spring day but the night's frost forced it to desist until then the great khan had not realized the foreigner knew how to express himself fluently in his language but it was not this fluency that amazed him marco polo goes on here is a thicker pore perhaps it was a larvum's nest not a woodworm because once born it would have begun to dig but a caterpillar that gnawed the leaves and was the cause of the trees being chosen for chopping down this edge was scored by the woodcarver with his gouge so that it would adhere to the next square the quantity of things that could be read in a little piece of smooth and empty wood overwhelmed kublai polo was already talking about ebony forests about rafts laden with logs that came down the rivers of docks of women at the windows dot 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 marco polo's looking at the chessboard mm. sees the fiber the grain of the wood inside the grain of the wood the slight little aberrations mm. and in those slight almost microscopic aberrations sees uh facts of the seasons sees the insects laying their eggs sees mm. this industry of forestry logs rolling down a river women opening windows right so keeps reading world inside world inside world and this is not even unrealistic this is a very realistic thing to look at a chessboard and to and to have your mind stray in all of these directions but is this straying good or bad i think it's mostly a beautiful thing but if you get lost in it it can be bad you don't want to be lost in your own brain that's why i think you have to have a balance between atlas making and world making <laughs> how do you move through the world and see the world instead of 
we talked about this last time in Snow Country, yeah. right? Like Shimamura sees mirrors of himself everywhere. So mm. does this is this book about, does this book suggest ways in which we can see the world for what it is? Or is it like the tea at the Palazzo of Hoon? Are we only moving in little bubbles that are impenetrable? I wonder if Marco Polo is guilty of, I mean, first of all, we don't know if he's actually moving, you know, or if this is all an interior journey mm-hmm. or a transcription of a series of interior journeys. Mm. Then we get to this section. His repertory, Marco Polo's, could be called inexhaustible, but now he was the one who had to give in. Don had broken when he said, Sire, now I have told you about all the cities I know. Kublai responds, There is still one of which you never speak. Marco Polo bowed his head. Venice, the Khan said. Marco smiled. What else do you believe I have been talking to you about? The emperor did not turn a hair. And yet I have never heard you mention that name. And Polo said, Every time I describe a city, I am saying something about Venice. Hmm. Kublai responds, When I ask you about other cities, I want to hear about them, and about Venice when I ask you about Venice. And then Marco, To distinguish the other city's qualities, I must speak of a first city that remains implicit. For me, it is Venice. Memory's images, once they are fixed in words, are erased, Polo said. Perhaps I am afraid of losing Venice all at once if I speak of it. Or perhaps, speaking of other cities, I have already lost it, little by little. When we so this this evokes so many wonderful questions in my mind and references to other authors and life experiences, you know, but I mean, so I don't know where to begin. Are we capable of seeing other cities as they are? Or Will they always be inflected by some kind of first city? Am I always seeing, you know, Halifax, Nova Scotia when I go to whatever, you know, uh, Paris or Santa Fe or Honolulu? You know what I mean? Mm. Am I seeing these places as they actually are? What do you think about this? I just love the section so much. Yeah, I do think one of the things um, it seems to argue is that one of the thousands. (laughs) Is that um, our childhoods are something we take with us everywhere and we view everything with our childhood eyes and against our childhood home in more ways than just, you know, comparing like this place is, has more grass than my right. hometown. But it's it, there's another part in the book um, similar to this where he says, I wonder if there's only if everyone has a certain allowance or, or something like that of faces that you can take in. And then at that point, you just see those faces it's over so, and over wherever you go. It's so, it's so Proust. I, I mean, Calvino had to have assimilated oh, yeah. every page of Proust. I mean, that oh, exact yeah. idea comes up. Yeah. And Proust, I mean, this idea of you carry your first, your first city with you everywhere else that you go is a Proustian idea too. And, and I think when you read Proust, it's a kind of miracle it's a kind of salvation it's a kind of solace you know proust argues i mean his novel is called in search of lost time and yes this lost time has to be searched and there is an immense amount of loss in proust but the best moments in proust are flashes of time regained the last volume of this novel cycle is called time regained Mm. i think proust argues that even though the search might be difficult these lost places and lost times can be regained so the Halifax of my youth is preserved inside of me mm. and will never be lost. And that's a miracle. Mm. 
But I wonder if there's a dark side to this too, because does that mean, like I say, like we're, we're constantly imprisoned constantly in this subject? Constantly projecting yeah. our entire, um, all our experience onto everything else. And we're projecting other people's qualities onto onto strangers. That New Yorker cartoon that you and I love. Oh, to- I, that's, wait, it's so weird that you say this because just yesterday I was trying to fall asleep and I remembered, I'm like, oh yeah, I should bring that up tomorrow. It's just a couple on a beach. No, a couple on a... They're on a beach in, in like lawn chairs. Right. And uh, the uh, <laughs> one of them turns to the other and says, oh no, we're still us. <laughs> so so I, we're, I'm not saying explain the joke, but there's some deep philosophical truth behind this joke, right? Mm-hmm. You think that a vacation will transform you in some way. Yeah. But you're still the same old grump. You still have the same likes and dislikes, the same annoyances, the same needs. It's like uh, Jerry Seinfeld said, traveling uh, with his teenagers is like, let's go uh, swear on pristine beaches. <laughs> well, that's so funny. I mean, I will, I will see your Jerry Seinfeld and I will raise you a Ralph Waldo Emerson. In Self-Reliance, Emerson has a lot to say about travel. Uh, he says this. It is for want of self-culture that the superstition of traveling, whose idols are Italy, England, Egypt, (laughs) retains its fascination for all educated Americans. They who made England, Italy, or Greece venerable to the imagination did so by sticking fast where they were. The soul is no traveler. The wise man stays at home, and when his necessities, his duties, on any occasion call him from his house or into foreign lands, he is at home still. I have no churlish objection to the circumnavigation of the globe for the purposes of art, of study, and benevolence, so that the man is first domesticated or does not go abroad with the hope of finding somewhat greater than he knows. He who travels to be amused or to get somewhat which he does not carry travels away from himself and grows old even in youth among old things. In Thebes, in Palmyra, his will and mind have become old and dilapidated as they. He carries ruins to ruins. <laughs> Traveling is a fool's paradise, right? Yeah. My giant goes with me wherever I go. Oh, yeah. So you're, you're, not, you're not getting these places. You're getting your reaction to these places. And your reaction to these places is, extremely, is entirely contingent on who you are and where you came from. Mm, that's cool that he says traveling is a superstition. You think somehow Can't, it will make you lucky. You think it will. Well, superstition implies that it's it's impossible. Like you can't travel. Mm. You know, uh, it's a fake thing. You, you shouldn't believe in travel. It can't exist. Yeah. Does Does Invisible Cities by Calvino agree or disagree? It certainly seems to agree with the fact that we carry ourselves everywhere. I mean, yeah, that place where they're like, it seems like you've just been here in this garden this whole time. If he carried himself wherever he traveled, then yeah, he was still in that garden the whole time. But the, I feel like we talked about this too when we, when we were talking about the Milky Way falling with a roar into Shimomura. Mm. The self isn't such a bad thing. No. It's not, it's, it's not a small thing, the self. It contains multitudes. You know, it contains the cosmos. Yeah. It contains all of these cities and more. Right, but the maybe the bad thing is the illusion that there is such a thing as traveling outside of yourself, experiencing completely 
new things as a new person. I don't want to sound like an annoying, you know, philosophy major, but who is a person? I mean, you know, you are already a fragmented thing. You are already a world of cities Hmm. and a world of strangers, even to yourself. The fact that a man named Italo Calvino could go into himself. Yeah, he's seeing these things out in the world, but these are all imagined. This is like total, totally fictionalized and invented stuff. Mm -hmm. The fact that you you could very well lock yourself in a room with four bare walls and find stuff like this and totally invent stuff like this. But, and I think this is important, he is finding it by making atlases. You know what I mean? He's mapping out his thoughts. He's inventing worlds in order to try to make sense of all these uh, places and memories and experiences we can have simultaneously or be simultaneously. You mean more than one person can be? Like, What do you mean? So um, he is writing this fantastical world um, with language. It wouldn't be possible. The imagination wouldn't be possible without some form of... um, Ordering and patterns. Well, what do you do then with this very cryptical thing that happens early in the book? You know what I mean? Like you have to be able to display the great, the the craziest sort of imagination. You have to use reality. You have to use language. You have to order. You have to put things into the right. But isn't this book? But isn't this book quite suspicious of language? Oh Um, yeah, he starts learning the language and then he goes back to not speaking again. Yeah, where's that? I think it's right at the beginning. Isn't it's right it? at the beginning, right? It's again another paradox of the book is that it is suspicious of language. Yeah. Newly arrived and totally ignorant of the Levantine languages, Marco Polo could express himself only with gestures, leaps, cries of wonder and of horror, animal barkings or hootings, or with objects he took from his knapsacks, ostrich plumes, pea shooters, quartzes, which he arranged in front of him like chessmen. Returning from the mission on which Kublai sent him, the ingenious foreigner improvised pantomimes that the sovereign had to interpret. One city was depicted by the leap of a fish escaping the cormorant's beak to fall into a net. Another city by a naked man running through fire, unscorched, a third by a skull, etc., etc. As the seasons passed and his missions continued, Marco mastered the Tartar language and the national idioms and tribal dialects. Now his accounts were the most precise and detailed that the great Khan could wish, and there was no question or curiosity which they did not satisfy. And yet, each piece of information about a place recalled to the emperor's mind that first gesture or object with which Marco had designated the place. The new fact received a meaning from that emblem and also added to the emblem a new meaning. Perhaps, Kublai thought, the empire is nothing but a zodiac of the mind's phantasms. He's using language to be suspicious of language so <laughs> yeah but is that just a you know one of those annoying meta postmodern tropes that gets old immediately no i don't think so right so does so language are... get in the way or does it help does it create or both. does it obscure um i think both that's why this <laughs> i keep going back to this atlas but i no, feel right. like literature is in many ways like cartography the atlas you know i read the word estonia as a child and create something in my mind that's not totally different from what the real place is, mm. but it's not the same. So it gets in the way of reality, but it does help sustain and perpetuate and describe and point to reality. You can only try. You can only try to give it space. 
Speaking of giving things space, look at this amazing paragraph on 148. This is maybe the climax of imagination praise. Mm-hmm. Just in terms of syntax, it's this kind of unabashedly daring bravado of a sentence. It's the second paragraph of the city, Hidden Cities number two, describing a place called Risa. And yet in Risa, at every moment, there is a child in a window who laughs, seeing a dog that has jumped on a shed to bite into a piece of polenta dropped by a stonemason who has shouted from the top of the scaffolding, Darling, let me dip into it, to a young serving maid who holds up a dish of ragu under the pergola, happy to serve it to the umbrella maker who is celebrating a successful transaction, a white lace parasol bought to display at the races by a great lady in love with an officer who has smiled at her taking the last jump, happy man, and still happier his horse, flying over the obstacles, seeing a francolin flying in the sky, happy bird freed from its cage by a painter happy at having painted it, feather by feather, speckled with red and yellow in the illumination of that page, in the volume where the philosopher says, quote, also in Risa, City of Sadness, there runs an invisible thread that binds one living being to another for a moment, then unravels, then is stretched again, between moving points as it draws new and rapid patterns, so that at every second the unhappy city contains a happy city unaware of its own existence. (laughs) So, I mean, implied, I mean, granted that's a long sentence, but it's still relatively short. Implied, though, is like you could play this mental game forever, literally forever, Mm -hmm. hopscotching from one image, from one person, from one object, to the next, to the next. The human mind is bottomless in its power to imagine this chain of linkages, mm-hmm. this chain of images. And not just any, but but beautiful images. Oh, they're so beautiful. I mean, but, I mean, mundane, but beautiful, you know, just like stuff that's happening in any city anywhere right now. You this, know? I know, this is what I love so much. There haven't been up to this point in the book very many like purely blissful passages, right? Mm, certainly not as blissful. Right. So this one is just like, just in case <laughs> yeah. you forgot that this is possible, like one happiness can lead to another, to another, to another. And it, in this long, huge sentence that ends abruptly and that could keep going, keep, could keep going on forever. Right. Well, this is a great transition to the end of the book, which is, I think, I risk overpraising it, but maybe it can't be overpraised. I don't know how to describe it. The last paragraph of this book surely tells us how to live more beautifully and more wisely than any other paragraph I've read. Oh, I know. I I honestly, getting to the end of the book, I thought, oh, okay, it's going to end on kind of a dark, like sad note, like a lot of great books do. Well, let's elaborate that context. What gives us this expectation? Maybe we're trapped in this garden. We cannot really communicate. Maybe language... Is, is a phantom. Maybe these cities are a phantom. Maybe they can never really fully be found. Yeah. Right? It's just always kind of like, you know, it's ghosts and phantoms and mirages all the way down, maybe. Right. And like this this desire that all of us have deep, deep inside to explore and to always reach new heights and to... Um, to see more and more and more and this greed for more beautiful experiences, right? Or to have more. And um, uh, you know that that's going to come to an end. So what's the point of uh, trying to keep reaching and longing for these things? Kublai asked Marco, 
You, who go about exploring and who see signs, can you tell me toward which of these futures the favoring winds are driving us? So what's going to happen to the human race? Hmm. Marco says, At times all I need is a brief glimpse and opening in the midst of an incongruous landscape, a glint of lights in the fog, the dialogue of two passers-by meeting in the crowd, and I think that, setting out from there, I will put together piece by piece the perfect city made of fragments mixed with the rest, of instants separated by intervals, of signals one sends out, not knowing who receives them. So slightly hopeful. Mm. We're all kind of like moving through this void in our own bubbles, sending out these signals, trying to shore against the ruins, a kind of pile of fragments. Mm. Not sure who will receive these signals or if these fragments will be found. There's a kind of stoic, resigned hopefulness in that. But then, then, you know, the book ends with this ecstatic paragraph. Kublai says, it is all useless if the last landing place can only be the infernal city. And it is there that in ever narrowing circles, the current is drawing us. And Polo said, the inferno of the living is not something that will be. If there is one, it is what is already here. The inferno where we live every day that we form by being together. There are two ways to escape suffering it. The first is easy for many. Accept the inferno and become such a part of it that you can no longer see it. The second is risky and demands constant vigilance and apprehension. Seek and learn to recognize who and what, in the midst of the inferno, are not inferno. Then make them endure. Give them space. doesn't really need us to comment on it, does it? Mm. Self-explanatory. And it's not, it's just so much more ecstatic and optimistic and beautiful than it needs to be. It's almost, it's almost an ending that's so good this book doesn't deserve it, as good as this book is. It really did catch me off guard when I read it. I was, I was like, wait, did I really just read what I think I read? I reread it several times, that last paragraph, and it, like, it, it really brought me to tears. And I can't remember the last time I cried at an ending. I mean, it happens. I read a lot of good books, but... Well, it's startling that what, what moves you to tears isn't the culmination of some kind of plot. It's not the happy ending of some kind of character. It's not... It's just an idea. I know. It's su- such a such an empowering, hugely hopeful idea. Make them endure. Find what is not Inferno and make those things endure. Give them space. I know, like that section where he just goes on and on in one never-ending sentence. Like a white umbrella or something, or a dog, or the painting of a bird, or... The happy horse. <laughs> the happy horse. You know, it's like if we pile enough of these things that are not Inferno together and make them endure, then we won't be living in an Inferno, you know? That's such a great idea. Give them space. How would you, how would you say that looks in an everyday life, like in a practical way? How do you give the good things space? Um, well, there are a million ways to do it. I, I wouldn't pretend to be an expert on many of them or any of them. It's not just one way. It seems it, like uh, just the, by being aware of them and t- to pay attention to them, you're giving them space in your in your brain. Notice them. Yeah. Notice beautiful things. Open the window and look at the sky. I mean, do one thing at a time. You know, like when you're eating a meal, focus on the beauty that it's offering you. Mm. When someone who you love is in front of you, look at them and not your phone. 
you know, um, do the dishes so the kitchen isn't a mess. Go out of your way to hang up something beautiful on the wall that you like looking at every time you pass. You know, it's like each of these is very small, but if you do a thousand of them, man, it's heaven, basically, you'll be living in. It's so cool for that a phrase to come up at the end after this book that is all about overpopulation. Do you know what I mean? Overpopulation? Yeah, just cities crowding in on your on your consciousness. So many cities, like, where can you be? Where can you rest? Where can you? Right. Where can you go? <laughs> and then you get to that end, um, give them space. It, it, it implies that you have the power to not let all of these cities overcrowd you or crowd out um, the good things. You can make space. Well, and that it's your responsibility to do it. It's not going to do it by itself. Exactly. <laughs> like, I, I like this, that the easy way is, uh, you know, just becoming numb. Yeah, that's right. Just, just be, if you can't beat them, join them. That's one way of dealing with the inferno. If you can't beat them, join them. And then, you know, you won't notice that you're living in an inferno. But right. obviously that's you won't also you also will not notice extremely the things that are not sub, suboptimal but it's your job to not do that and to give other things space the simpsons the simpsons keep coming to mind but it's just slightly blasphemous to be referencing them at, in such a rapturous climax but this is episode where i think they give bart ritalin and his add for at least a few days is uh, tempered and remember this no. they're in they're in class and mrs krabappel has written the names of three poets on the board Auden, Frost, and Jewel remember? <laughs> oh my gosh I and uh, uh, somebody else, Nelson or something says, hey there's there's uh, something happening outside the window I don't know what's happening outside the window but say, hey come look at this everyone goes to the window and starts looking at this thing that's happening in the schoolyard Super superstar Bart now just wants to do schoolwork and he remains at his desk and says to his class Come on, you guys, these poems aren't going to appreciate themselves. <laughs> Which I've always remembered. But there's something, you know, related here. It's like oh poems God. aren't going to appreciate themselves. You must give poems space. Yeah. You must give painting space. Just, just the fact that somebody wrote them and that they exist in the library somewhere isn't good enough. Yeah, you don't want to be spoon-fed your life. Because well, it's not going to be the it, way you want it to be. No, it won't be. Sp that, but it won't even get that far. No one That's is. Right. No one is spoon feeding these to you. They they won't be brought to you on a spoon. You know, you have to go get them. They will. They will not appreciate themselves. I'm sure that uh, Calvino had read and memorized this very famous last paragraph of the Renaissance by Walter Pater. It's almost a rewriting of this last paragraph, which I'll read to end with. So in the book The Renaissance, Walter Pater finishes. So it's, the Renaissance is a book about obviously, Renaissance art and poetry and culture. And this is the very famous last paragraph. I think Calvino is Paterian, if that's a word. At his core, Walter Pater says this, We are all under sentence of death, but with a sort of indefinite reprieve. We have an interval, and then our place knows us no more. Some spend this interval in listlessness, some in high passions, the wisest, the least among the children of this world in art and song. For our one chance lies in expanding that interval, in getting as many pulsations as possible into the given time. Great passions may give us this quickened sense of life, ecstasy and sorrow of love, the various forms of enthusiastic activity, disinterested or otherwise, which come naturally to many of us. Only be sure it is passion, 
that it does yield you this fruit of a quickened, multiplied consciousness. Of this wisdom, the poetic passion, the desire of beauty, the love of art for art's sake has most. For art comes to you professing frankly to give nothing but the highest quality to your moments as they pass, and simply for those moments' sake. And he also says, to burn always with this hard, gem-like flame, to maintain this ecstasy, is success in life. It's beautiful, right? Yeah, it is beautiful. Last words? Print out the last paragraph of Invisible Cities and hang it on your fridge. I think, yeah, you, you, there could be... I mean, that it should be hanging up next to the drawings of your kids... Or their yeah. goofy-looking school pictures, or whatever postcard, <laughs> whatever postcard from whatever city you visited recently that you love, you know, um, cultivate a little, a little curated collection of things that are not inferno and give them space. Mm, I love it. Now for the writing prompt. This comes directly from the moment in the book in which Marco Polo says that whenever he is describing a distant foreign city, he is describing Venice, his hometown. This could be because Venice is unlike any other city in the world. I once got to spend a very lucky and magical six hours there and couldn't believe that such a place existed. I made a frantic pilgrimage to San Michel Cemetery where Ezra Pound and even more importantly to me, the poet Joseph Brodsky are buried. Spent a minute, a few minutes at their graves, and um, then just went back to the city itself and had fun getting lost. It's a place that is very much like a dream. So it could be that Polo says this because of the uniqueness of the city of Venice, but it could just be, as Claire and I speculated, that we all carry our past and our roots with us. This is Marco Polo's hometown, and so of course he will be seeing all other towns and cities through its lens. So the prompt for today is a kind of travel writing exercise. You can do this for real, or you can do it in your imagination if you have some time to leave where you are and go into a new place, even if it's just, you know, the neighboring town or village, you know, 20 minutes down the road. That would be great if you have to do this through memory. This can also work. I want you to write a portrait of your hometown that is disguised as a description of another city. So like I say, the city 20 minutes down the road or a city that you once visited years ago. On the surface of this little free write, make your writing look like a description of this other place, but try to compare it explicitly or implicitly to the place that you call home, the place where you grew up, the place that defined you and made you. Like I say, you can do this, do this explicitly as a kind of comparison exercise, or you can do it subtly and write a portrait of your hometown in kind of negative or in silhouette. At any rate, I hope you just have fun with this. The poem of the day this time is one of my favorite city poems. It's by the Greek poet C.P. Kavafi, and it's translated by Edmund Keeley and Philip Sherrard. You can find various translations of this poem around, but I really do think that this translation captures the tone and beauty of this poem in a special way. It's called simply The City. You said, I will go to another land. I will go to another sea. Another city will be found, a better one than this. Every effort of mine is a condemnation of fate, and my heart is like a corpse buried. How long will my mind remain in this wasteland? Wherever I turn my eyes, wherever I may look, 
I see black ruins of my life here, where I spent so many years destroying and wasting. You will find no new lands. You will find no other seas. The city will follow you. You will roam the same streets, and you will age in the same neighborhoods, and you will grow gray in these same houses. Always you will arrive in this city. Do not hope for any other. There is no ship for you. There is no road. As you have destroyed your life here, in this little corner, you have ruined it in the entire world. That's it for now. Um, there'll be more soon. Don't know when. Claire and I are reading E.M. Forrester's Passage to India right now. Uh, so probably be next. We're not sure. Yeah, but in the meantime, keep reading and writing. And don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. <laughs>